following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of July 20th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss the continued implosion of the Washington NFL team, which has been buffeted by its racist name, and now an investigation into a sexist workplace culture. Next, we'll turn to the WNBA, which, like the NBA, is bubbling in Florida, but unlike the men's league, is facing off-court stories about the shabby treatment of a star player and a team owner who really shouldn't be one. Finally, we'll discuss recent anti-Semitic remarks by Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson and the reaction, or lack thereof, to them. I'm in Washington. Joining me from Palo Alto, California, is Slate staff writer and Slow Burn Season 3 host Joel Anderson. Sup, Joel? What's up, Stefan? Like it, man, I'm telling you, dude, the hair thing, the beard combo you got going, the listeners can't see it. But it's on point, man. I'm respecting that. At some point, we got to start live streaming just for our hair. So they can see it. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And we are joined this week by a special guest, Lindsay Gibbs. She is here in D.C. Lindsay writes the Power Plays newsletter about women's sports and is a host of the podcast Burn It All Down. Good to have you back, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. I gotta say, everybody's quarantine look is is doing good. Lots of hair on the on the live streams today. Very seventies, <laughs> a very seventies yeah. feel. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Levine is Slate's national editor, the author of The Queen, and the host of Slow Burn season four. David Duke. He's mostly off this week because he is busy wrapping up production of Slow Burn, which I hope everyone is listening to. I say mostly because Josh will be here for one segment. Lindsay will be here for two. You will figure out which ones once we start talking. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The troubling thing about the Washington Post's page one blockbuster last week describing a longstanding culture of sexual harassment at the city's NFL team wasn't just the grossness or breadth of the behaviors. They were gross and they were broad, on and off the record testimony from more than a dozen former employees and beat reporters. It was the wearying predictability that got me, both for sports generally, but also for this team specifically. Under owner Dan Snyder, the Washington franchise has been notable for three things, its racist name, its on-field ineptitude, and its consistently awful management. That Snyder hired and tolerated a bunch of sexist jerks sadly came as no shock at all. Lindsay, the currently nameless Washington team issued some empty statements of concern. Snyder added his wife's name in one of them for cover, and it announced an internal investigation. And now much of the focus is on whether the NFL could force Dan Snyder to sell the team. But you wrote in Power Plays that the media are missing the bigger point in this deeply reported story by Will Hobson and Liz Clark, that this isn't a story about Dan Snyder at all. It's about a systemic problem in the sports industry. 
Yeah, it was very concerning to see the week full of speculation about this story being one that would maybe end Dan Snyder's career or force him to, to sell the team. And then it was many um, pundits decided that the story was a disappointment because it probably won't lead to the end of his career. And it felt like they're missing the point. This is a story about the way the football culture and the sporting culture at large has been built to literally exclude women from the front office to the sidelines, the stands. It really spurns women. Um, it's all about the men in charge find them sexually attractive or not. And if they don't find them sexually attractive, then they're not even worth the time. And if they do find them sexually attractive, then they're just harassed endlessly. You know, I've heard countless stories this week and for for the past decade since I've been in this industry from colleagues across this industry that mirror the allegations against this Washington NFL team from rival offices to, you know, minor league baseball stadiums to the college ranks up and down. So this really, to me, wasn't at all a Dan Snyder story. Um, I'm all for ousting Dan Snyder. But to me, it was just about this culture that has been allowed to perpetuate and as as these beat reporters and these um, all these men kept speculating about this story and teasing the story that was coming out this week, I just, to me, couldn't help but wonder how many of them were the exact men who look the other way when they see their female colleagues be harassed, how many times they've contributed to this culture. And it's like by making this a Dan Snyder story, they're trying to change the subject instead of like really working to change the culture here of the whole industry. That's a great point. And I think, yeah, it's not a Snyder story. It's an American corporate culture story. It's a story about American men and like their entitlement in the workplace. And uh, I don't know how many people saw the on the record documentary on HBO Max that sort uh, covered, um, you know, several women in the hip hop industry and what they dealt with working for Russell Simmons and even some other people, notable, you know, members in the music industry. And I thought about this uh, in relation to that, like how many women's careers were derailed as a part of this, because you read about these, you know, one of the employees, uh, Applegate, she worked, you know, for the franchise for so many years. And now, you know, she's working in the family business. She's not working in the NFL, you know? And so it's, I guess like there's not a there's never anything that the Washington NFL franchise can do or the NFL can do to make up for like this tremendous loss of human capital, but it just seems really sad, you know. Like I mean, it it's obviously terrible, but then I think about like all the opportunities, all the careers that were missed, all these other things that these women have to think about other than their actual work, and that's just really disappointing. And I, you know, we read uh, in in the Washington Post story that was sort of a follow up that covered what women have to deal with uh, on the job in sports. And, you know, just the idea that there has to be a group text about, hey, man, be careful about Prime, the Prime 47 restaurant in Indianapolis because those guys are out of control here. They, they may ask you for your number, you know, or uh, for, for something that doesn't have anything to do with your work. You know what I mean? So it just, yeah, I mean, it just is, it's not a Dan Snyder story. It's a story of, you know, men feeling entitled to doing and treating women however they want in the workplace. And it's notable, though not shocking, that while some of the allegations involving Redskins front office staff go back to the early 2000s, not long after Dan Snyder bought the team, a lot of this stuff happened post Me Too. It's not as if there was some cultural shift in the NFL or in this team or some 
light bulb went off that we need to do something to make sure that this company is a safe place for women to work and that the people who work here, the men who work here, learn how to treat women who are trying to do their jobs. Rhiannon Walker, the reporter for The Athletic, who spoke on the record to The Washington Post and then wrote a, a very moving piece in The Athletic um, detailing what happened with the Washington team and its response to her uh, her complaints to the organization, um, she was pretty damn clear. I mean, this was this was in 2019. She describes a story at the Combine in Indianapolis. Last year, this is an ancient history. This has been going on up until this moment. The organization fired two uh, football personnel executives who were the subject of the statements from these women. They fired a guy that was in charge of their media and was a broadcaster for the team for 16 years in response to this. So please don't tell me that there was an awareness here and that this team was was doing something about its culture. Zero awareness. And, you know, going back to your point, Joel, the story I think specifically said that most of these women who, by the way, most of them did not speak with, uh, they spoke on the record, but anonymously because um, they're still in NDAs. The The team won't release them from their non-disclosure agreements, which don't talk to me about. Don't give me these apologies and talk about a culture change if you're not going to let these women out of their NDAs. Like that's just, you know, step one. Um, but they were all in their young 20s. For most of them, yeah. it was their first job out of college. And the two reporters um, who were on the record about the harassment were both in their early 20s yeah. uh, as well. And you know, Rhiannon was very open about how much this impacted how she approached her job. You know, I mean, she's still on the beat and she has support from her organization and from her colleagues. But she admitted that, you know, this this changed her calculations for reporting last offseason. And it impacts every single decision that that you make. And I think about it is how much of this job is the networking at bars after hours, right? Is the text messaging um, at all hours? Is these personal relationships? How many men get these tips because they're on the golf course with this guy or the proverbial cigar rooms, wherever they might be. And for women, that's always something that's going to be harder to navigate. And if you do end up getting one of those buddy-buddy relationships, then you're just the subject of rumors, you know, of being like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you inappropriately got this. Whereas for men, it's all about the personal relationships. Absolutely. And, you know, even just broadening out a little bit, like, and this is probably going to come up a lot today, that I think this is a top-down issue. It's a leadership issue within the NFL. And so I tend to think of this, the men that run these franchises, most of them are wealthy Republicans. A good number of these folks supported Trump. And without making this point too much more political or convoluted than that, these are men who financially supported the candidacy of a man who at some point, at a certain point, had two dozen accusations of harassment and abuse. So right there, we're getting a sense for like their distance or disregard for this sort of behavior. Like even like they've already endorsed that behavior in one way or another. Right. So if it were happening on their watch, it's not a surprise that it would not be a big deal or that they would not go to the lengths that you would think they should to suss out this sort of behavior, a sort of culture within their own uh, organizations. They they sort of baked it in as the cost of doing business. And so, like, when, when I see the NFL says it's going to wait for Snyder and his organization to get the results from their personally appointed investigator, it just shows that they're not really that interested in getting to the bottom of the truth. Like, 
They haven't outsourced other investigations that I can remember, like the Flate Gate or Bounty Gate or anything related to player behavior. When it comes in, and when it comes to the NFL, like often the way we find out about these things is not via their own, you know, diligence. It's from media outlets that are reporting on these sorts of problems. Yeah. So now we've just got a situation in the NFL that I, I thought about over the weekend. Players are held responsible for their behavior on or off the field, while team executives can harass women on the clock and the league is just going to sit on its hands. Yep. It's been six years since Ray Rice, Joel. Um, the mm-hmm. NFL made a it has made a lot of noise about how it changed. It hired people, it hired women into into positions of authority inside the league. But you know, and you said that the league takes charge of investigations. It took charge of the Jerry Richardson investigation with the uh, with the Carolina Panthers too. Mm-hmm. What's different about this? Dan Snyder wasn't directly implicated. That's insane if that's your rationale. Yeah. It makes no sense. If you're trying to, to change the culture of your league, and this is a league that doesn't get great ratings for its hiring of women. Um, the Richard Lapchick, who, who does that annual report on uh, race and, and gender diversity in sports, uh, gave the, the NFL a C-plus for gender diversity in its most recent report, and that doesn't even really take into account what teams do because at the club level, they don't do a breakdown of hiring. So who knows how many people work for the Washington team, how many women were working overall for the Washington team and whether those numbers have changed. One point in the post story that I think was really interesting to consider is that, that it feels like this is an amateurish business. They had one person running human resources for a team that has more than 200 employees and sh- and, sh- and and the woman who was in charge of human resources had other responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this this when you, it's funny you mentioned that because Snyder it took him like a day to respond even though he knew that this was coming and I was like, "Oh, they don't have enough employees for him to have somebody to write his public statement for him." You know what I mean? Like they they're, they're so they're operating on such a bare bones organization that Snyder literally does not have enough people to get things done that he needs done, which is why we're seeing and hearing so much from Ron Dam Rivera. You know what I mean? Whose daughter works there now, so he's going to fix everything. Oh, right. He really cares about the culture now that his daughter is an employee there. But, um, you know, I do want to push back a little bit, though, because while I agree that the culture of the NFL is, is incredibly toxic and all these men have supported Trump, I mean... I can say just like it's not just the obvious um, racist who perpetuate racist environments. It's also not just the obvious, you know, sexist and misogynist who perpetuate these cultures of misogyny. I mean, think of what we had at the Dallas Mavericks, you know, in the NBA just a couple of years ago, a big report about the culture of sexual harassment there. And I think that going forward, you know, what the NFL could do is mandate that there are legitimate HR departments. Do you know what I mean? Like, these are things I think that the league could do on an institutional level, but it's going to take everyone to start changing. And, you know, it's going to take, you know, um, especially men up and down uh, the ranks of these systems to kind of call this out when they see it to be a protective and to just call out their friends when they're doing stuff like that, right? Like, no, not making it socially acceptable, I think, is kind of the step one. And I'm not saying it's socially acceptable in every place, but it's certainly in a lot of places is, you know, it's just perpetuated. The one part of the story that stuck out to me was there's this glass or the see-through plexiglass staircase going up from the locker room to the lobby. 
And this was in the orientation, the women would warn each other about this plexiglass staircase because the men at the bottom could look up and see the women's skirts as they're walking up. And to me, it's just such a metaphor of just like how these buildings were literally not built with women in mind in any way, shape or form. And if the women are there, they're literally built to like be exploited. And I just, just, you know, step one, like, change that staircase. (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, there's just like, there's some very obvious clear cut things that this organization um, and every organization needs to kind of be looking at what plexiglass staircases uh, do we have within our ranks um, Mm -hmm. that are just making the day-to-day lives of women in this building more difficult. Right. Well, the the NFL has extended a lot of credulity to the Washington NFL franchise that, that, that they're going to be capable of identifying the problem and then solving the problem, right? That I mean, right. I, that the NFL has said we, you know, we will review their results. But I mean, by that time, you've already sort of got a narrative there. You're accepting their findings as if those are the findings that you know uh, that, that those are credible findings. Um, and then I think the other thing, and that we we've kind of hinted at hinted at this already, that they're placing a considerable burden on Ron Rivera and like. He's a football coach. He's re- he's got to rebuild a team that has won 17 games in the last three seasons, ranked 28th in winning percentage in the past decade, got to figure out who his franchise quarterback is. That's a lot of work all on its own. But now they want him to help with the franchise rebrand, like picking a mascot. They hire consultancy firms to do that sort of stuff. They want him involved in that. And now they want to they want him to help rebuild a front office culture that was clearly toxic and sexist, right? It doesn't make any sense. Especially when you consider that Rivera came from the organization, the Panthers, where Jerry Richardson was, you know, had, had all those claims of workplace misconduct against him. And that when in the middle of all of this, and as Bamani Jones points this out all the time, it was Ron Rivera who gathered up his team in the middle of this investigation into, into Richardson, all these accusations of workplace harassment, and had his team gather up after a win and salute Jerry Richardson. You know what I mean? So like, this is the guy that you're expecting to be capable and willing of ushering in a new and respectful workplace culture? Seriously? It, it doesn't It doesn't add up. So the team is going to wait until Ron Rivera and an outside law firm weighs in before they start looking for people to hire in their front office that may signal some change. Look, the NFL is so reactive on all of these issues, right? And this is a this is one of the biggest problems with sports leagues. If it's not bad enough, we'll just tolerate it until it blows up and then we'll do something about it. I mean, that was the case with domestic violence. Um, that's the case with just about everything that the NFL does. And that's what we're seeing again here with this team over not just this issue, but the naming issue too. Um, Wait until it gets bad enough, and then we will put out some statements, put together a committee, hire a bunch of lawyers, and say that we're changing the culture for the better, and we're just looking forward now. We're not looking backward. It's like of all people to give the benefit of the doubt to, I say this is not a Dan Snyder story, but like, how do you give Dan Snyder the benefit (laughs) of the doubt ever? What has he ever done in his time as a leader of the team to prove that he deserves the benefit of the doubt or that the only thing he needs is more time and awareness and then he's going to solve everything? I mean, 
just I live in DC now and just ask anyone, nobody trusts him to get this right. And I would point out that we are in effectively a preseason for the NFL. The NFL never stops, of course. Has the league or the team reached out to beat reporters, to to women beat reporters, and told them we're gonna do something about this? Um, has anyone reached out to Rhiannon Walker and the other reporter that was quoted in the post piece to say, we're going to change the climate inside this team and all teams in the NFL. It's been a week almost, you know, it is not hard to come up with PR band-aid solutions to get the right message out there and get the right policies and, and cultural changes rolling. Mention them by name, at least in your apologies. <laughs> like this is someone who is still covering your team and you can't even yeah. mention her by name in these public statements that you're, you know, touting your wife and daughters in. like, it's just, it's mind boggling. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we talk about the WNBA, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel, Lindsay, and I will talk about what's going on in the NFL, specifically a player's campaign to pressure the league to make sure that their health protocols are lined up before training camps open. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, here's our reminder that you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangup plus. The WNBA is scheduled to tip off its regular season Saturday in Bradenton, Florida at the IMG Academy. Closing out the season-opening triple hitter will be the defending champion Washington Mystics against the Indiana Fever. For the WNBA, this should have been a time to celebrate its champion, its best player, and a brief respite from the specter of COVID-19. But that's not what's happening. Last week, the WNBA got into a nasty dispute with reigning MVP Elena Del Don after denying her a medical waiver for the upcoming season. Del Don has Lyme disease— And she's worried that playing amid the coronavirus pandemic could jeopardize her health and her weakened immune system. Needless to say, it's doubtful that she will play this season. The league's denial made their best player the latest face of the resistance against the let's get back to normal contingent. As our guest host, Lindsay, wrote in her great newsletter, Power Plays, last week, the fact that Del Don ever felt she had to choose between her health and her paycheck, absolutely unconscionable. In many ways, it's all part of a growing tension between the players of the league. Lindsay, it's going to be quite a while before any of us are able to focus on the games, isn't it? It certainly is. So, yeah, so Elena Deladon, really everyone expected her to get this waiver. Um, So essentially with the WNBA, the way they set it up for the entire season, if you wanted to not play but still earn your salary, you had to go through through this independent medical panel that was set up between the WNBA and the WNBA Players Association. Pretty much everyone assumed that Deladon with her Lyme disease would be high risk. She wrote in the Players Tribune that she takes 64 pills every single day. 
um, just in order to play basketball. Someone who's been a beat reporter for the Mystics for years, you know, there's been weeks where she would get a cold and, you know, cold going around the locker room and she would be out, you know, like it would just, she couldn't play because of her immune system. But there's some kind of medical community, uh, not on the same page, all on Lyme disease and especially the long-term implications of Lyme disease. So it's not on the official CDC list of um, of diseases that are highly susceptible to COVID. And it seems that that's primarily what these doctors looked at and they denied her medical waiver. She's very upset. The Washington uh, Mystics and head coach and general manager, Mike Tebow, have said they will pay her anyways. That They're planning on her staying a part of the roster, staying in D.C., working on rehabbing her back because um, she had back surgery and that rehab was interrupted due to COVID. But overall, it's just a terrible, terrible look for the league. Um, I think her exception should have been a no-brainer. And I think with this disease, anytime health and safety is in question, you've got to lean on the fact of, you know, keeping your players safe, especially the best players. Yeah, it really seems crazy that that, that the WNBA allowed this medical panel to do this. I mean, meantime, there are other players that have gotten exemptions from playing, including Deladon's teammate, Tina Charles, who had just joined the Mystics this offseason. Again, a veteran player, 10 years, uh, one of the best players in the league. She had asthma issues that she contracted when she was playing in China uh, about a, a, a long time ago, actually. Um, and it's been a persistent problem for her, and she was cleared immediately. Um, so, you know, it's the, the, these panels, as we've seen in other sports with concussions in football, anytime you get these outside bodies evaluating, it's going to create political problems, PR problems for the leagues, because there are going to be differences in treatment from case to case. And that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the only two exceptions we know that were made were the Tina Charles with her asthma and also um, Jessica Breland, who is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. So those are the only two levels of exceptions. It's pretty high level. But yeah, it's just, you know, the National Women's Soccer League, the way they set it up for their month long Challenge Cup was that there were no questions asked. If you didn't want to play, you still got your full salary. And while I understand that that's not something that every league is in the, you know, the way to do the truth is these are athletes, they want to play if they feel safe, right? They want to play, they want to further their career, they want to get in front of these league, you know, these coaches and these talent scouts, and they want to, you know, they want to be doing their job if they feel safe enough to do it. And I think you have to operate on that bit of goodwill and good faith. Yeah. And I think in a way, you're sort of seeing here that the WNBA are sort of the canaries in the coal mine for vulnerable players, players that don't have nearly as many options career-wise and financially to take the sort of stand that you might see in Major League Baseball or the NBA. Because, I mean, what Atlanta makes, what, $215,000 a year? That, that's that's not even a minimum salary in the NBA. So, you know, they're really being forced into a position to where they're having to choose between, hey, am I going to make enough money? Except in this specific instance, but you're still putting these women at risk or they're choosing between their health and their careers. And um, it just, you know, you can see how that will play out with college athletes, with high school athletes, people in other sports with, that don't have nearly the same amount of like, you know, media attention or, you know, f- resources or whatever. So, you know, you can just kind of see right now that the WNBA is putting their players in this sort of untenable position where they're, they're forcing them. I just... 
I, I guess it always comes back to me, and if you listen to this podcast every week, I just don't understand why we're making people do this. You know, like why would you force people to make that sort of decision? I, I like, and Lindsay's right. The players want to play. Like, of course they want to play. Like, this is what they do. This is this is their livelihood. This is also fun for them. Like, you only get so many game days, but it just isn't right right now. So why would you why would you make the face of your league look like this? Why would you do this to them? Why would you put them in a position where they have to go through this? I think this is a basic miscalculation on the part of leagues. I think that the NWSL got it right. They understood that most of the players want to play because career windows are short, as you said. They need the money. Um, it's not like these sports are super lucrative for women. We know that. Um, and the just the basic desire to be with your team and to continue your career after this ends. And what you saw in the NWSL should have been a message to the WNBA. Very few players opted out. Only the, only the most prominent, most famous players decided not to play for whatever personal reasons. And even in the WNBA, it's about what, Lindsay? A dozen players have decided not to play for a mix of reasons. And some of those are prominent players like Liz Cambage of, of Las Vegas and uh, Christy Tolliver of Los Angeles, Renee Montgomery in Atlanta. And again, the, the reasons have been mixed. Some have wanted to pursue uh, social justice work in this time. Some have concerns about families. But this is a minimal amount of investment on the part of the WNBA and the NBA to pay these players salaries. It almost feels to me like these leagues were a little bit cynical and uh, afraid that athletes for some reason would exploit the opportunity to get paid without playing. And that was a mistake. Absolutely. And the truth is, if they've done their job on the safety protocols, right, if they are really making this as safe as they say they are, then the players shouldn't be that worried, right? Like, I mean, a lot of players in the bubble now are saying, honestly, getting tested every day, knowing who's around me, I feel a little bit safer than I would at home. And yeah. I don't know if I totally agree with that or not, but I do understand the logic. I mean, you know, everyone's home is different and let's it's not safe out anywhere right now. So I do think you're right. It's totally cynical. I mean, ultimately, it does feel like they are just they're fighting against their players when they should all be on the same page. I mean, look, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, these are the biggest names of the game. They're both playing this year, right? right. And it's not necessarily because of the money. It's because they're towards the end of their careers and they know that this is one of their times to make their legacy and they want to be with their team and they feel good about the safety protocols. Mm -hmm. If Elena Deladon doesn't, um, because of what she's dealing with, Pay her anyways and just let things keep going. Well, Lindsay, you wrote about that. And just, just to get back to like the, the, the base level question about whether or not they should be doing this, because you seemed really ambivalent about it when you wrote about it previously, right? Like you, you said, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel okay. Where are you with that now then? Like, what do you think? I still have a ton of hesitation. I'm still incredibly anxious and incredibly nervous, especially things that really get me more nervous or seeing that you know, all the extra protocols the NBA has in place, like they have these fancy monitoring bracelets and all these different things that the WNBA players don't have. And you just wonder how much are those just for show or are those really necessary for safety reasons? And if they are necessary for safety reasons, then why aren't the women getting them too, right? These are the things that I, that just like make me incredibly uneasy about all of this. Lindsay, are there other differences between the protocols uh, between the two leagues? No, 
huge ones as far as I know. It's mainly just the amount of monitoring and these and just the general kind of amenities that are available for the NBA players versus the WNBA players. I think they're both getting tested around the same amount of time. Honestly, the WNBA has been pretty mum. Um, and pretty stonewalling about giving out a lot of information on their protocols. They say for you know medical reasons and for safety reasons, but it's uh, it's not super comforting when you're not completely transparent about that. The National Women's Soccer League has all of their protocols on uh, their website, you know, so you can just get them. Anybody, of course, the NBA, every single thing leaks in the NBA, so all of that's obviously very public. Whereas the WNBA, there's a little bit more of a veil of secrecy. But you know what makes me question my questioning is when I talk to all these players, you know, I'm on the phone with different WNBA players, different Zoom calls all the time. And for the most part, they tell me they feel really safe and really um, comfortable and are really relieved and happy that it's that they're trying to make a season happen. But of course they are because it's their job. And we all want to just kind of be able to do our jobs and pretend that none of this is happening. So None of it really feels right. And I don't think it's going to feel right. And I think that as I wrote in power plays, I'm going to try and not make it feel right. I'm going to enjoy the games and cover the games, but it's, I'm going to keep leaning into the fact that this is uncomfortable and I don't know that any of this should be happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's what I kind of come back to. And I'm, you know, uh, Howard McDowell at 538 talked about you know, all the talent that's going to be out. And you, you mentioned this too, Stephanie, you know, all the p- players that are not going to be there. And man, I know that you, you said Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, who, you know, I mean, they're like my age. You know what I mean? Like these are not, <laughs> I mean, you know, that the, we all say they, like they're not the youthful stars of the league, right? Like they're not Sabrina Ionescu, right? But we're going to be missing a tremendous amount of talent just this year. Like just at the like top end talent. And man, like to me, that seems like a, so much of what the games are built on. Like I want to see stars when I'm playing. You know what I'm saying? Like I like I'm not just maybe I'm too casual a sports fan where I just don't tune into anything. Like I mean, I don't I won't watch a regular season NFL game unless it's special. I won't watch a regular college game unless it's special. I just can't imagine missing all this talent, missing all these people. You know, Cambage, Elena Deladon, and people being excited to watch all these games. I don't know, Joel. I mean, I think, again, it's like, yeah, it's a small league and and basketball rosters are, are small compared to other sports. But still, we're talking about, you know, 12 to 15 players. And yeah, there's some big names there. But the greater... Those 12 to 15 the- players are like a big... I mean, you know what I mean? Like, those, those are the people that people know... Those are the people that not people all of them. No, not all of them. Really? You know, I mean, every single team still has some superstars or some superstars in the making on them. I think because the WNBA is so condensed, right? Because it's only 144, the talent is so much deeper, right? right. So you think of how many supers. Think if you took all the NBA talent and put it onto just 10 teams, right? (laughs) If you were missing just five of the top names, you would still have a lot of, you know, really good talent on those teams. And honestly, I think it's going to be, you know, maybe this is a little bit too glass half full for me, which is Mm. definitely not my brand, but there's some players that don't get any playing time that seem really promising some younger players or some players that have been buried on the bench a little bit, but have shown a lot of promise that because uh, that are going to get some more playing time, that are going to get a chance to shine and get get a chance to prove themselves this year. And I'm kind of excited to see that shake up. But every season, like last season, Sue Bird was out. Um, Diana Taurasi was out for most of the year. Brianna Stewart was out. Um, so those are three huge names. Um, this year is equivalent. And like last year was still incredible. So 
I'm not as worried about that as I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just, I think it's just, can we really keep these people safe? And should we be putting the resources towards doing this when we live in a country where there are people still waiting weeks for test results and, um, you know, ICUs are overflowing and, you know, we can't get things together as a nation. Like, should this be where resources are going? And Lindsay, speaking to that, whether or not people should play, let's talk about something that I actually disagree with you about. The co-owner of uh, Atlanta, the Atlanta franchise, Kelly Loeffler, a senator, a Republican senator out of Georgia who uh, the players definitely don't seem to want to be in the league anymore. And you feel the same way on this, correct? You don't think that she should be permitted to be an owner anymore, right? Yeah, I think that she's literally using her players as political pawns in an attempt to get to the Senate. She's clearly shown that she's going to use them to um, up her chances of getting the Senate. I think anyone treating their players that way and having that little disrespect for their humanity, this isn't even really to me about like political beliefs or whatever. It's about the way she's using them as you know, campaign talking points and willing to the day they're moving into IMG, the day they're having this incredibly stressful day of moving into a campus in the middle of a pandemic, having this, you know, these reckonings over racism and trying to figure out how as a league to move forward that she throws her predominantly black team under the bus and writes this open letter. And I don't like it's only going to get worse as her campaign goes on. She's not going to stop this because she gets pressed for it. And ultimately, I think that it can't this is not OK. It's, it's she's she's using her players as political pawns. Let's back up for a second for people that aren't totally up to speed on this. Leffler was appointed to the Senate. She is now running for re-election in November. She has co-owned the dream for years, so this has not been a surprise, but her political beliefs obviously came to the fore after she was appointed to the Senate, and she has been very pro-Trump, and she's been very open about that. And to Lindsay's point, what Leffler did was she wrote a letter to the commissioner of the WNBA disparaging the social justice campaign that the players and the league have backed. I mean, among other things that she said, I adamantly oppose the Black Lives Matter political movement. She called BLM a radical Marxist group that actively promotes violence and destruction across the country. She claimed that the left was trying to silence her. She said that players should stand for the national anthem and unite around the American flag. She is clearly attempting to be divisive and draw attention to the fact that she is this right-wing politician who stands opposed to the things that even the team that she co-owns represents, as if she's taking some sort of bold stance out there. Yeah, and, you know, I, I guess I'm going to have a less progressive stance on this than you'd expect, because, you know, obviously I'm a person that doesn't necessarily want to have anything to do with the Republicans in my private life, right? Um, but I'm not sure it's necessary to kick her out of the WNBA because I think the system is working, right? The players are saying they don't like her, they don't want her, don't want to play for her. And Kelly Leffler is free to say what she feels about Black Lives Matter. And it'll work itself out. Like, if the players don't want to play for her, don't want to, you know, and, and make a stand. Like, you, like Lindsay, you talked to Elena Coates, and she said that she wouldn't play for the dream as long as Leffler was involved, Right. I feel like that's the system working. I think this is a very cynical play on her point, like sure. as you all have mentioned. I don't necessarily think it's going to work. We'll find out, but there's no guarantee it's going to work. It's ugly, and obviously it's a reflection of our political climate, but 
I have no sense for, for the fact that it's going to work. And long term, you know what I mean? I don't think her position in the league is tenable. Put it that way. And I think right. that like running her out before she gets, before she ejects herself, so to speak, I think it would just send a bad signal. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure that the league should be coming out and saying we're kicking her out or we're forcing her to sell her shares because of her views. I think the NFL has a better case for kicking Dan Snyder out because Mm -hmm. he is a a detrimental force to the NFL's economy. If the other owners in Atlanta recognize that Kelly Leffler is destroying the franchise, Mm -hmm. they will pressure her to fall out, to get out, to sell her shares. And clearly that pressure is going to continue coming. The Twitter was was on fire from NBA players. The Players Association tweeted E-N-O-U-G-H-O-U-T. And then there was a stream of tweets from prominent players. Skylar Diggins, Leffler's got to go, period. Natasha Cloud of Washington, get her weak ass out of the league. Um, It was one after another another after another. And that is this what is, great. is going to make the WNBA take action or or the Atlanta Dreams co-owners take action. If free agents don't want to play there, well, that team's going to suck. Yeah, And that is going to make that team worthless and something will have to change. I hope so. But I also just feel like this isn't, once again, we've got 12 WNBA teams right now. There's so few options, so few roster spots for these women that, yeah, if they do take a stand against signing, that's really bold of them, but it's also really cutting their like career opportunities uh, off. And it makes, I don't know, the whole thing makes me uncomfortable. I do wish the league would be more forceful about it. I do wish the players association mm-hmm. would be more forceful about it. And I hope that this doesn't go on for long. Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA did say that they're interested buyers. And that's kind of all she would say. And I hope that we can really kind of move past this because as long as her campaign goes on, the people on the right are going to try and tie her ownership to the of the dream to her not being conservative enough. And so she's going to continue to throw her team under the bus. And that's just how it's going to go. The bottom line is it's not in the WNBA's best interest for Kelly Leffler to be an owner, regardless of what you think about her right to speak out against BLM or say whatever she wants. Yeah. Right. Just a quick uh, no, and I want to know that all the players this weekend, opening weekend, will have Brianna Taylor on the back of their jerseys, um, all WNBA players. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Over the July 4th weekend, Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson posted on Instagram a screenshot of page 126 of what appears to be a self-published book titled Jerusalem by someone named Deneen Barnett. Highlighted on the page were three grossly anti-Semitic lines attributed to Hitler about the relationship between Jews and blacks in America. A second post crossed out all but one of the lines, quote, they will extort America. Their plan for world domination won't work if the Negroes know who there were, end quote. Snopes.com debunked the quotation a few years ago, tracing it to a post on a clickbait website from 2015. 
Where Deshaun Jackson came across the book, there's a hand in the image, though we can't be sure it's Jackson's, and why he chose to post what he did, we don't know. But Jackson also appeared to spend the holiday weekend watching videos of and posting about Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam leader who has made anti-Semitic remarks for decades. Jackson was defended by, among others, ex-NBA player Steven Jackson, who's been rightly celebrated recently for his outspoken commentary about the murder of his friend George Floyd. Deshaun Jackson, no relation to Steven, initially said that, quote, anyone who feels I have hate toward the Jewish community took my post the wrong way, end quote. But by Tuesday, he was issuing multiple apologies. The NFL and the Eagles condemned his statements, the team fined him, a redemption tour began, and a debate ensued, mostly about the absence of widespread condemnation in the sports world. We are joined now by our own Josh Levine. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Jewish person checking in. That's why we're having you today. You've spent the last months immersed in the life of a virulent anti-Semite, David Duke. What do you make of all this? So this is incredibly serious, and we'll get to that aspect of it in 30 seconds. But first, I just want to note just a word of advice. If you're ever just thinking, you know, Hitler, look, he was awful, but... (laughs) There's there are just a couple quotes I want to share that really kind of get get right at. No, that's not a good idea. Do not do that. If you're a social media manager, a publicist, you know, tell your clients this is not a good idea. Because just from a pure kind of tactical standpoint, if you're Deshaun Jackson and you want to get people, you know, won over to your side of things, just don't quote Hitler. Like that's just that's not a, a winning idea. Um, but <laughs> onto, the, onto the substance. It mostly just makes me really sad that these ideas have currency today. And you mentioned Stephen Jackson, somebody who around George Floyd's murder was such a kind of strong and profound voice on Black Lives Matter and was speaking, you know, one of the things he spoke so eloquently about was about the need for racial solidarity, of solidarity across groups, and that people need to step up for each other um, in, in these sorts of moments. And so to hear him kind of echo these lines and say that Deshaun Jackson was speaking the truth was kind of a, especially sad. And there's this idea that was, I think, popularized by Louis Farrakhan, that Jews are particularly responsible for and complicit in the slave trade and in have been responsible for trying to keep black people down in America. It's interesting that David Duke is actually kind of arguing the opposite and that his ideology is that Jewish people are trying to encourage, you know, Jewish people are scheming against quote unquote white people by kind of being in league with with blacks to, to take down the like pure Aryans of, of David Duke's um, conception. And so all of these ideas are wrong and pernicious and are millennia old. Just this idea that the Jews are are scheming and and are evil. And you know, I think what this shows is that they have a kind of currency. And it's, you know, it, it's just like the, the stuff that we've been talking about with with race and anti-blackness and this idea that, oh, there's a new generation. And so the old racists are dying out. And so everything's going to be okay. It's like, no, these ideas, 
they proliferate on the internet, on YouTube, wherever, and they're just going to keep coming up and coming up. And it's depressing because that means that we're going to continue having these cycles of, you know, this this kind of anti-Semitic commentary, anti-Semitic actions and behavior that manifests in in horrific violence, like we saw in in Pittsburgh. And so it's it's just it's just this cycle that we're going to have to keep talking about and speaking out against. Yeah, I mean, you know, Josh pretty much puts the a nail in that. And this happens a lot even with anti-Black racism, you know, and I think about this, that, you know, sometimes people say certain things don't need to be said, that, you know, obviously anti-Black racism is wrong and, you know, that that's sort of an obvious thing to state, but I don't I don't necessarily see it that way. And I, I disagree when it comes to addressing bigotry. Like, I think it's important to be direct and open, if only to model the sort of behavior that we want to see in the world, right? So given that, and given that anti-Semitism is one of the oldest forms of bigotry that there is, and it's responsible for untold, unimaginable suffering across the course of human history, it's important to let Deshaun Jackson and Steven Jackson or non-athlete Nick Cannon know that echoing those kinds of hurtful stereotypes and tropes are dangerous. Um, And there's no denying that. And I'm Disappointed in those who've tried to excuse what they said and what they shared. It's not surprising. And we can talk about that for whatever, you know, it, it, whatever point in this segment. But the most important thing to note is that it's just disappointing and it's sad. And it's really difficult to ask people for unity. Like when you're going out and asking people, hey, look, we want you in the streets. We want you aligned with us to march for us against, you know, this racism that we're facing and it's really difficult to then go and like echo some of the same ugly shit um and you know while you're in the course of doing that and so um yeah man i guess you know the bottom line is that you know i'm really i'm really sad i'm not disappointed when it comes to stephen jackson though um you know stephen jackson has gotten a lot of credit for speaking up about george floyd um but as somebody who sort of follows him on social media I, I'm not all that surprised that he had a misstep here. Well, he said a lot of misogynistic stuff too, right? Right. Exactly, yes. He said misogynistic stuff, particularly about black women. He's an imperfect uh, imperfect voice, which doesn't mean that it's not needed. It just means that he's imperfect. and that It was inevitable to me that he'd make this sort of mistake. What, what was really disappointing, I guess, as it is in all of these kinds of episodes, is just how it was one after another, the names that were linked to supporting Farrakhan or liking someone's tweet, um, Kevin Durant, Dwayne Wade, Allen Iverson. Um, and then when somebody stepped up to criticize black athletes for doing this, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who wrote a piece in The Hollywood Reporter, um, Ice Cube, you know, rapper, but also, but also sports person, does he still own that? Uh, the the big uh, three, big three, tweeted shame on the Hollywood Reporter who obviously gave my brother Kareem thirty pieces of silver to cut us down without even a phone call. And it feels it's just the 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 weight of all of that, and the you know we're a couple weeks late to this, but one of the the most prominent criticisms was that there wasn't enough blowback against this right when it happened. Um, and I don't think we should be equating the level of response to one form of bigotry or another, but it was noticeable. And voices started to rise up here, and I think that was a good thing um, from within the professional sports community. Um, 
you know, one of the most interesting I thought was Zach Banner, a Steelers lineman who had a lot of, you know, very moving and passionate things to say about his personal life and being in Pittsburgh when the Tree of Life murders at the synagogue happened a couple of years ago when he was a rookie. Um, and genuinely sounding like, you know, he believed and cared about, you know, as he tweeted, we must work together to end all forms of hate and bring unity. And it sounded so, so, so sincere. And that's the kind of voice that I think is helpful here. Curious what you guys thought of what Dave Zirin wrote, um, in his column about this, where he said, I would want to say that as part of a family who lost people in the Holocaust, anytime I see anti-Semitism, I'm deeply distressed but I also know who my enemies are, and it isn't the Black people who seem to always be singled out for anti-Semitism. The outrage machine is always focused on Black people, particularly on whoever knows someone who knows someone who met with Louis Farrakhan. And I think I kind of go halfway with Dave Zirin there. Like, I, I think that I don't think that Deshaun Jackson is my enemy. Like, I don't think he himself is personally the problem here. But I think that the way in which he's been called out, I think by the people who are doing the calling out appropriately, is he's somebody who has a huge platform and has huge cultural influence. And, you know, what we saw after he he made that post is that like, it kicked off this whole news cycle of other people agreeing with him. So it's not necessarily that Jackson should be canceled or I don't think, I don't think he should necessarily even be suspended or anything. I think that him saying it is a huge problem. He's not the problem. The fact that he said it is the problem. And then, um, and he, who's to say how sincere it is, we'll be able to judge him by the work he does, but he's now saying and doing all the things that you would hope someone would do about educating himself and, and meeting with people. So I, I just do think, I think there's this distinction to be drawn because I totally agree that, um, and that's what, what makes, what makes it sad is that like, I don't think that, you know, black people who express anti-Semitic ideas are the biggest problem that Jews are facing or are anywhere close to the biggest problem, um, in the world right now. But I feel like if we could imagine a world that was like the 180 of this, where you had people like Deshaun Jackson and all the other folks who were following him with sympathetic comments were saying the exact opposite about how we can't have anti-Semitism and let's all um, you know band together. That would just be so much a, a better world to be living in. Jamel Hill wrote a piece for The Atlantic addressing her own failing in this regard. I mean, she talks about how she was suspended by ESPN back in 2008 after she wrote rooting for the Celtics is like saying Hitler was a victim. Josh, she could have used your advice back in 2008. And she has acknowledged as much. Yeah. Yeah. She goes on in this piece to say that the unfortunate truth is that some black Americans have shown a certain cultural blind spot about Jews. And that seems to be at the root here. It's the, the the sort of lack of education or understanding, and it shouldn't be dismissed, and nor should we silence voices like Deshaun Jackson on matters of, of social justice. Um, but that is a longstanding fact here. And the question becomes, how do you change that? Doesn't it, Joel? Like, where does it come from, and what do you do about it? Yeah, it's just really difficult. And I don't you know, want to talk too much out of school. But I mean, Josh, you know this from growing up in New Orleans. 
I'm trying to think of very many places in this country where Black people and Jewish people, like, live side by side. You know what I mean? Like, where there's, like, a lot of interaction between the communities necessarily, like right? Crown because Heights, like, famously, not in a good yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like, it's it's like a handful of communities in the Northeast, and then the rest of the country is sort of, you know, for reasons we all know, people are segregated and live in their own communities or whatever. And so I think that that does play a role in sort of the ignorance of the respective struggles, right? Yeah. And it's just sort of profoundly sad that the same racism that creates that distance, that segregation, in turn feeds that same bigotry, and so, yeah, you know, circling back to what Dave Zirin said, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like halfway there with it, right? Because obviously, I said at the top here, it's awful, you know, and anytime you mainstream anti-Semitism like that or, or put it out there, it makes the world less safe for people, you know, whether or not you possess any power or influence it yourself, like just mainstreaming those ideas, putting them out there makes the world less safe. But yeah, I do think that there's something to be said for the idea that like we live in a world, we live in a country where our leadership has promoted mainstream anti-Semitism from, you know, the most powerful platform in the world. It's just sort of the atmosphere. It's the environment we live in. You know, we've sort of come to accept it. And so then when we hear it from, you know, a guy like Deshaun Jackson, like that's a much easier, that's a much easier uh, person to, to, to sort of call out and the whole accountable in a way that we just can't, um, you know, in our government and other political figures. So, yeah, man, I don't, you know, yeah, I, I, I see what Dave is saying. It's just, <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm pained as, I, as, I'm, as I'm talking through this because um, it's a really difficult conversation to have. But um, bottom line, man, Deshaun Jackson, you got to be smarter than that, bro. You know, you're in your 30s. You went to Cal. You're an adult. You know, like at a certain point, like ignorance isn't enough of an excuse. Yeah, I think like a, an overly simplistic, but I think accurate definition of bigotry is assuming the worst of someone because they belong to a particular group or assuming mm-hmm. the worst about a group of people because they um, belong to that group. And I had actually didn't know very much about the Nation of Islam and, Far- and Farrakhan and the kind of specifics of the anti-Jewish rhetoric, but I was looking into it in preparation for this segment. And there's like an incredibly long, like copiously footnoted, anonymously written tract that was put out by the Nation of Islam and um, decades ago. And it has the kind of guise and veneer of being like scrupulous scholarship and well-researched. And it in fact is not that the material in there that's like making these arguments, it's, it's inaccurate. And if folks are interested, we can put a, a link on our, our show notes about some of the, the scholarship about what the truth is about Jews and the slave trade. And well, I should, I should say here that based on what I read, it's basically the Jews participated in the slave trade to the ex- basically in proportion to what their population was, that they weren't like running it or in charge of it. So like certainly extremely shameful, but um, not to the degree that um, has, is, is often expressed. But a long way back around to saying that there's no way that I could know or that Deshaun Jackson could know what the truth is about this or anything in the world without reading about it. And you need to, you know, we all need to be educated about what we're reading. We need to have like literacy around, okay, is this like stuff I'm wa- I'm reading on the internet or watching on YouTube 
or seeing on Instagram, or even reading something that's footnoted and looks like scholarship. Is this true and is this accurate? And so I think that that can be really challenging for anyone, but also if you are predisposed to feel a certain way about a certain group, whether it's Jewish people or Black people or anyone, then anything you encounter that um, seems to jibe with those views, you're going to consume as if it's true. You're not going to question it. And so I think that's just so such a vicious cycle. And it's how people fall into these like vortexes of white supremacy on the internet. And it's just really hard to break people out, especially as Joel said, if you're not interacting with people in real life and you only know this caricature. And so that I think is the sadness of it is that it just feels like it doesn't have to be this way. And a lot of it just feels based more on lack of knowledge and lack of understanding than any kind of like viciousness. And yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from right now. And I would add the question now is that if this is perceived or if this is actually a problem among certain segments of players in professional sports, should more be done than just Deshaun Jackson talking to a rabbi or visiting the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Should this be part of, you know, you talked about educating and understanding where information comes from, Josh. Should this sort of broader anti-bigotry education be something that leagues should attempt to do with athletes? Um, to bring in speakers not just about anti-Semitism, but other forms of, of racism and, and injustice. Um, seems like it would be a worthy thing alongside teaching players how to manage their money and avoid distractions outside of locker rooms. A final note, one thing that if, in terms of reading, I would encourage people to read is uh, Adam Serwer in The Atlantic. He's black and Jewish. And he wrote a piece about growing up uh, during the rise of Louis Farrakhan uh, in Washington, D.C. And I, we can put a link to it on our show page. But I do think that it it, it may help in some way get people to understand like what the appeal is to Farrakhan in some communities and how, you know, some of this anti-Semitism gets spread. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. In our segment on the WNBA, I mentioned how Tina Charles developed a form of asthma while playing in China. That was back in 2015-2016. She was playing in Urumqi, a city of 3 million in the northwestern province of Xinjiang, which borders Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. Wow. It's pretty far from everywhere. What a crossroads. I know, right? But that's what you got to do if you're going to get paid to play basketball. Uh, Tina Charles played two seasons there, plus two more for other Chinese teams. She's also played in Russia and Turkey. So let us recognize Tina Charles's overseas adventures, but more specifically, that team in China. 
which has one of the great nicknames in sports, Joel. They are the magic deer. Oh, isn't that what? great? The magic is that a real deer? deer? Is that a real deer? It, well, it's from a kind of elk that is native to the region. The team is the magic oh, deer. I love that name, and the logo is great too. I want to get a magic deer T-shirt. Man, this really makes me want to get up to that Mongolia border yeah. as much as I've, I've. That really is a country I want to go see. So, shout out to the magic deer. Magic deer, Joel. What's your magic deer? Yes, my magic deer. So. In my lifetime, I have met only one real diehard Tampa Bay Rays season ticket holder, which is a real feat because I lived in Tampa for a total of four years over two different stints. And which should help people to understand the degree of apathy Tampa and St. Pete have for their Major League Baseball team. But that one season ticket holder, his name was Mike Conrad. Mike was my editor for three years of the Hernando County Bureau of the Tampa Bay Times. I got there in 2007, and even by then... Mike was as much a part of the landscape as sinkholes and Spanish moss and Confederate flags and the grouper fish. By the time I showed up in his newsroom, Mike had already been there about 20 or so years. He was a very gentle, very kind, and very quiet man who gave us in support what the Times did not in compensation. He was the best kind of boss, open and efficient and generous, and he largely kept himself outside of the newsroom. Or maybe I didn't make enough of an effort to get to know him outside of the newsroom. But anyway, I did know these two very important things. One, he played clarinet in the Hernando County Orchestra. Two, he grew up a St. Louis Cardinals fan, but picked up an affection for the Rays along the way. In fact, Mike was one of the original season ticket holders for what was then the Devil Rays. And to get a sense of that dedication, our newsroom in his home was in Brooksville, Florida. That's an hour away from the Rays' home stadium in St. Petersburg. And that's a stadium, Tropicana Field, by the way, that team owners thought was old and insufficient. In 1998. So it's not like Mike even got the benefit of a nice night in a new stadium, like they built in every other city in the Major League Baseball over that time. But on the bright side, that sort of municipal, regional, and local business bickering that prevented another stadium from getting built also made for a rich news environment. Anyway, I can't tell you how often he went to the games, but I saw Mike getting the hell out of the office early enough on summer nights that he got his money's worth out of it. And just think of all the futility that my friend Mike got to see in that time. The Rays didn't win more than 70 games in a season until their 11th in 2008. Even today, the Rays have the third lowest winning percentage in Major League history. But the Rays got really good for a few years, even making it to the World Series my first year in Hernando County, which they went on to lose to the Phillies, which was actually good news for the assistant editor, Greg Hamilton, who was from Philly. So at least somebody in our newsroom got to be happy. But Mike was faithful to Hernando County, the Times, and the Rays, just a group of grizzled underdogs if you've ever known them. And he just came back for more and more every year with the same peaceful and generous disposition, even when times were hard, which they were. Now, I was a little worried when I heard Mike retired in 2017. He put in a lot of tough, thankless years for the paper, steadying what often seemed to be like a sinking ship. He had been an anchor for so long, and I'd wondered what he'd do without the paper and what the paper would do without him. But man, Mike was out there living. He eventually saw a baseball game in every single stadium in Major League Baseball. He continued playing with the local orchestra, rarely missing any shows. He visited friends all over the world. He got a chance to visit Cuba. And by this time, I'd sort of lost touch with him, but I was happy that he was happy and free after so many years. And then Sunday, I came across some bad news. Mike died last week after getting infected with COVID-19. 
And I could go on about how fucked up this is and how it could have been avoided. But simply, Mike Conrad and the rest of us deserve so much better. He had so many more concerts to play and so many more games to watch. I didn't know how old he was. His age wasn't in the obit, which is surely a piece of information he'd have expected me to have gotten when I was working for him. But it doesn't matter. He should have had a hell of a lot more time to enjoy his freedom than he got. And when the Rays throw out their first pitch on Thursday, they will have one less exceedingly loyal fan. And it'd be great if somehow, some way, the Rays could tell him thank you for his service. It's the same thing I'd like to say to him, too. Oh, man, I'm so sorry, Joel. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. We've all had editors that meant a lot to us when we were young in our careers, and Mike sounds like he was one of the good guys. He was great, man. He was great. And now, Stefan, on another note, I hope maybe a slightly brighter note, what is your magic deer? Leeds United last week clinched first place in the second tier of English football and earned promotion to the Premier League, where the club will return after a 16-year absence. The revival is a big deal. Leeds, a city of about a half million in Northern England, once was a top team in the country and in Europe. It won titles in 1969, 1974, and 1992. It finished second five times, and it was in the Premier League from its founding in 1992 until 2000. 2004. Then the club overborrowed and overspent and fell into the English equivalent of bankruptcy, sinking to the third tier before moving back up. And now, under the lovable Argentine coaching eccentric, Marcelo Bielsa is returning to the big time. But when I think of Leeds, it's of those glory years a half century ago, partly because the team was one of the first to enter my soccer consciousness when I was a kid watching weekly games and highlights on public television. And more recently, because of the book and movie The Damned United about Brian Clough and his 44-day run as Leeds manager in 1974. He succeeded Don Revy, who had guided the team to most of its hardware with a hard-nosed, often dirty style. Let's listen to a clip of Clough from the movie played by Michael Sheen meeting his new team. You lot may all be internationals and have won all the domestic honours there are to win under Don Revy. But as far as I'm concerned, the first thing you can do for me is to chuck all your medals and all your caps and all your pots and all your pans into the biggest flipping dustbin you can find because you've never won any of them fairly. You've done it all by blooming cheating. Great movie, Joel. You got to watch it. Anyway, over the weekend, a faithful hang-up listener across the ocean, Mark Bernstein, told me about a memorable Leeds moment from April 1971. Leeds and Arsenal are battling for the league title. Leeds is home against a struggling West Bromwich Albion. West Brom scores in the 19th minute, and then in the 69th minute, mayhem. Here's the call from famed English soccer broadcaster Barry Davies. Pass intercepted, but Saget is offside. The referee waving him on. Brown is going straight through, taking on Sprake. And the goal by Aston and Leeds will go mad. And they've every right to go mad because everybody stopped with the Leidman flag. All right, let me translate that. West Brom's Tony Brown intercepts a pass and streaks across midfield, but he slows up when he sees a teammate, Colin Suggett, about five yards offside. The linesman's flag goes up, but the delightfully named referee, Ray Tinkler, doesn't blow his whistle to stop play. Brown 
who's behind the idle leads defense, dribbles toward the goal and slides a pass to Jeff Astle, who taps it home for a 2-0 lead. The leads players go bullshit and chase after the ref and the linesman. Fans pour onto the field, mostly middle-aged men in jackets and ties. Cops do too. They frog march fans from the scrum of players and officials. Don Revy walks out, the coach. For some reason, he's holding what looks like a rolled-up tartan rug or a blanket. Here's uh, some more of Barry Davies. John Revy, a sickened man. Look at him looking up to the heavens in disgust. So many fans on the field being taken off and more police on them players. And the Yorkshire spirit really coming to the fore. Cooper still complaining to Ray Tinker, the referee. And that is going to be a decision or a non-decision which will be talked about for years. A sickened man. Leeds fans still blame the call for the team finishing second that year, one point behind Arsenal. Decades later, Tinkler was still standing by his non-call, which would be a no-brainer today because Suggett, the player who was in the offside position, wasn't involved in the play at all, so the game would have just continued. Tinkler told The Guardian in 2009 that that's how he always called games, that he was just ahead of his time. He said one of the Leeds players told him, you cost us a lot of money today and Tinkler said that he replied if that's all you're playing for good luck to you there are people who still bear a grudge he said I was a farmer and used to sell potatoes there was one man who'd come to me and say I'll have some of that bastard referee's potatoes I used to charge him a fiver a ton extra for calling me a bastard it's never bothered me I've always said yesterday's dead Tomorrow's yet to come. For Leeds United, tomorrow has finally come. Back to the Premier League they go. As their song goes, Joel, marching on together. Let's listen to a little of Marching On Together because it is a really good fight song. Marching on together. And that's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up. In our bonus segment this week, Joel, Lindsay, and I talked about the NFL's attempt to return to the field. It's clear that like developing a good protocol hasn't necessarily been at the top of their to-do list, and so here we are. The Chiefs and Texans are supposed to report today. NFL players are contractually obligated to report a face disciplinary action under the CBA, just like any other year. And as Master Tesfacion of the Bleach Report has pointed out, there currently isn't a protocol on when to shut down a facility because of COVID or a protocol if a player or family member is seriously ill or dies from COVID. So in many ways, their leadership hasn't differed all that much from the White House's as far as I'm concerned. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson, Josh Levine, and Lindsey Gibbs, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.